This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-hosts are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors, Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Uh, we're going to have a really, really interesting show. Uh, we're going to have a continued update on what's happening with the coronavirus and research coming out of Penn with one of the, the doctors and professors from Penn. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, but Professor, before we get to our guests, uh, any your sense of what's going on here the, the last week of, of the markets? Yeah, well, you know, the market, of course, the big news is uh, what happened to oil earlier this week. I mean, that dramatic move that no one expected. Um, I, you know, I, I think, the, you know, the, of the longer-term effects, uh, it lowers the probability that WTI, which was, you know, the benchmark for the U.S., is 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 not... Is, is going to go down in terms of how much is going to be benchmarked to it. Brent, which is a much better design contract, allows much wider delivery, stayed relatively stable during that period. So unfortunately, you know, the, in Cushing, Oklahoma, is going to not have the prominence in the future. Um, you know, nothing else should really be surprising. Oil, WTI is now 17, Brent is 21. I mean, it is true we get in the 30s next, next year. Um, but uh, uh, that's happening. Um, I, I was clearly disappointed, you know, yesterday when Remdesivir, uh, the early report out of China, was unfavorable after the uh, good report out of the University of Chicago uh, the the week before. One one should know um, that um, uh, th- that these antivirals, and this was emphasized by uh, Scott Gottlieb this morning usually work better in the earlier stage and administered early, and these were administered late. So I was actually surprised when I got that Chicago report two weeks ago that they were, they were work, they seemed to be working in late stage. Um, and uh, uh, that surprised me. Um, maybe they're not really. Um, so now we go back to the early stage. And, and don't give up hope on it. I'm not saying, you know, it's there, but don't give up. Hope on that. There's still two more trials involving remdesivir um, that will be coming out in the, in the next couple of weeks um, uh, on that score. Uh, we did get also news today, another uh, very bad report on um, um, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, not good. I never really gave that much hope, um, but uh, that one does not also appear 
So uh, unfortunately, it 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 doesn't that doesn't appear uh, successful. Uh, other su- somewhat surprising results uh, again was 21 percent of uh, New Yorkers randomly selected have had exposure to coronavirus, uh, and some this ten times the amount that is confirmed. The good bad news about that the good news is. That means the uh, di- the mortality rate looks like it's less than one percent, which is pretty much what we always thought. Actually, 0.5.6 on a on a very rough scale. Uh, the the bad news is that uh, you know how how are we going to contain it? Um, you know, if uh, in fact uh, 21% over one out of five uh, New Yorkers uh, have it. Um, I think if you take the whole state, it was 14%. New York City was 21. Um, uh, the only way I could explain that and the, the decline in admission that we have, if we have really 21% randomly selected um, having it, um, uh, it, the social distancing must be working unbelievably well uh, because we're getting, you know, a big decline in admissions in New York, uh, which I don't think we would be getting if, you know, if it were spreading uh, that great, and I would certainly like to know Leek Ann's view on on that. She follows, you know, these infection rates um, very very closely. So yes. social distancing I, I is think, uh, Yeah. What do you, yes, What is your interpretation there? So I I think the first these anti antibody tests really need to be taken with a little bit of grain of salt, um, mainly because the test accuracy really needs to be above ninety nine percent to give a good read. On the other hand. Uh, if you think about New York, and like you said, you know, if New York City is indeed 20%, then the death rate you know, goes back to the original estimation, which uh, put out by CDC says it's a number between 0.5% and 1%. And I myself, um, when I was you know, looking at this virus, I, I believe that's still a good estimate. On the other hand, on the, um, a lot of our media, they jump from this 20% right into this herd immunity uh, idea. And I really want to put an end to this argument because really if New York is 20%, uh, herd immunity needs at least like 60 to 80%. It, it's right. a, it's it, a it, virus. That, yeah. 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 That, yeah. So, yeah, that's impossible. And in the rest of the country, when the infection rate is unlikely to be more than 5% or 10% at most, then these kind of tests, is very meaningless because the false positive rate is very high. So well, I think it, it, you're, yeah. you're perfectly right. And I think the Santa Clara test is very distorted when the inherent rate is very, very low. But if the rate is 20 percent, then even 90, 95 percent, and even if you go to the higher one, you're, you, you, it, it still it still seems to be high, um, at least in some of the evidence that I read. The Santa Clara is really put into question. It was never... Yeah, that the Wall Street Journal article on that was really wrong. I think, yeah. I think suggesting I think, uh, it was point point one percent, and the same same as uh, the you know seasonal flu. That's wrong. Um, we do have a yeah. we have a great guest also for the for the first part of the show on this. So let me bring him in also. Yeah. So Dr. Kevin Volpe is the founders. President, Distinguished Professor of Medicine at, and Medical Ethics and Policy at the Perlman School of Medicine, as well as a Professor of Healthcare Management at the Wharton School. Uh, he's a, also the Founding Director of the Center for Health Incentives, Behavioral Economics at Penn. Uh, Dr. Volpe, thank you for joining us on the show today. Sure, happy to join. So a comment about the 21% unexpected finding with New York City. 
uh, I think one of the explanations there is this was not a random sample or representative sample of people. From what I understand, it was people who are out and going to grocery stores. And so you can imagine that that's a group of people who have been much more intrepid about being out and about. And if we were to do a similar study of people who have been sheltering at home, that prevalence is probably much lower. But yeah, actually, in China, they are doing a similar study. There's no data released yet, but most of the chatter is saying that even in Wuhan, it's, you know, 5 to 10 percent. So I think the New York City 20 percent number still needs to be, you know, much wider, more randomized testing. So you think those, 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 those people that are, are actually out have a much higher infection rate than those who stay home. Now, some stay home because they have symptoms, and, they, of course, they would have an extremely high probability, but you're saying just a lot of them are, are, are social distancing at, at a very high level, and they're going to have a much lower, and you think that that latter group would tend to really predominate and uh, lower the overall infection uh, rate in New York City much more. I think that's right. I mean, when you consider that perhaps 50%, perhaps more, of people who are infected are asymptomatic. A lot of those people are probably out circulating and didn't feel the need to socially distance as much because they feel totally fine. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that those who have been more cautious probably are less likely to have been exposed and uh, so if we were to, to do a similar study, we'd find much lower than 21% of them have antibodies. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In any case, I agree with Likian that we're, we don't want to go to herd immunity even with a half a percent mortality, right? I mean, that... Yeah, so, yeah. That, and even just from back of envelope calculation, suppose this virus death rate is, is as low as the flu, you know, 0.1%. Still, you know, flu, we already have a flu vaccine that provides close to 50% immunity protection, right? That is the herd immunity from vaccine. So before we have a vaccine, even this death rate is as low as flu. It's still premature to talk about herd immunity, let alone that, you know, there's no evidence yet says immunity can last forever. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to know, the do- do- uh, Dr. I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly what your specialty is. Uh, again, um, some of these, you know, Remdesivir had not a good report last yesterday, but not to be ruled out. Uh, what is your feeling on both an, a therapeutic that would reduce symptoms dramatically and chop off that terrible end that, you know, results in death, or renders it more just like a regular flu. And then, of course, the vaccine, which, you know, is, we, we all know is further out. What, 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 you, what are your views on, 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 on those developments? Well, I'm an internist and a health economist, so I mostly study statistical models as opposed to the details of the different clinical treatments that might be available. But I think the experience to date that we've seen, particularly with chloroquine, really highlights that we can't we can't basically practice medicine by anecdote. We need these careful empirical studies with real control groups before making decisions. And I think 
it's really critical because many of these treatments, chloroquine in particular, can cause various heart arrhythmias, and so there's actually a potential of harm if those treatments are used in patients in whom the average benefit is small or negative. I think there's a lot of hope still in terms of various antivirals uh, and the potential, but right now it's it's really just hope. And, you know, I think as, as many have highlighted, a vaccine is still pretty far off. Uh, when you look at the amount of time it's taken to develop vaccines in the past, I believe the fastest was mumps, and that was something like four years. Uh, we now have a lot of technology that can accelerate that. I think clearly the world's attention is drawn to this in a way that is perhaps unprecedented. And so, you know, everyone is talking about an optimistic scenario being 12 to 18 months, but that is the most optimistic scenario. So uh, we're going to be in this situation for quite some time to come. Well, what what about the the, the, the terrible statistics on which disappointed me about uh, how many people are surviving ventilators? Um, seems like extremely low. I mean, I, and, and it is also associated with people who've had a lot of comorbidities, to say the least. But um, uh, the good part is I don't think there's a ventilator shortage, at least it didn't appear in New York City and uh, seems now unlikely uh, elsewhere. But, uh, I, you know, is it is it 20% get off or, uh, uh, you know, without passing away? I mean, um, why has that been so, so, so poorly um, effective? Yeah, well, let me let me try to comment on that. So two two things maybe to add. So you're, I think, probably referring to a study that was just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association by a group that studied data from the Northwell Hospital System in New York. And there were these horrific uh, statistics that were, frankly, quite alarming that 88% uh, of those who had been put on ventilators did not survive. Uh, but there are a couple of caveats, perhaps. One is that th this is, in essence, a point in time, and a lot of the people who were put on ventilators are actually still on them and may survive. So it it, it may not be quite as bad as, as that number suggested, but clearly uh, what seems to be happening is people who are critically ill and sufficiently ill to require being put on a ventilator are at risk of multi-system organ failure. So it's not just the lungs that get attacked. Uh, it can cause, it can attack the cardiovascular system. It can cause arrhythmias. It can cause heart attacks. It often is uh, about 30% of patients that seems to be causing all sorts of problems with clotting throughout mm -hmm. the body. So that can cause pulmonary embolisms from which people can suddenly drop dead. It can cause strokes. It can cause kidney failure. It can cause problems with um, limb ischemia, where, for example, you're not getting enough blood supply to your feet, to your legs. Uh, there have been amputations from that. So in people who get very sick, there can be this horrible cascade of various complications, which in essence become impossible to treat. Mm -hmm. 
Let me just reintroduce our guest quickly. We're talking with talk, Dr. Kevin Volp, who's a professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at Penn, professor of healthcare management at the Wharton School. Uh, Dr. Volp, what, what, what is Penn doing? Any sort of things on the research side that your team, things you're looking at, um, how, how Penn is looking at, at helping with research and, and different things that you guys are doing? Yeah. Well, there's an enormous amount of research that's going on at Penn Medicine that's related to this. There's a a number of teams that are doing clinical trials around a number of different potential therapeutics, around vaccine development, around developing better testing and higher throughput testing. Um, But our team is really more involved on the side of rolling out programs and and evaluating how to make those programs more effective. So, for example, we worked with Google to stand up a chatbot that's now being used throughout Penn Medicine uh, and through our portals. We have been doing work uh, related to predictive modeling. There's a team at Penn through the Penn Medicine Data Science Group that stood up a model called CHIME. Uh, that's being used to predict need for hospitalization and ventilators. There's some refinements to that that uh, our group's been doing with Christian Turvish at Wharton, John Jondro at Wharton, around estimating how much personal protective equipment, PPE, will be needed for healthcare workers. Uh, and we've been doing a lot of thinking about the path forward in terms of how do we get out of this when you think about trying to open up the economy and you think about some of the inherent limitations to the traditional public health approach of human contact tracing, uh, it just seems like a huge challenge when you contemplate the enormous number of cases, the amount of interaction people have with other people. We need to have some type of technology and human-based solution that would work. And when you look at what other countries have done, Uh, I think a lot of the challenges here will be we have pretty strong privacy laws and cultural beliefs around not wanting to share data. Uh, So that's going to be a big challenge in terms of thinking about a technology-based approach that's going to be effective in helping the public health authorities highlight who's had contact with whom and how do we create a system that's going to be both palatable to the American public and effective. Doctor, I have a little question about no, the data, because you, you work with this data. It seems that uh, there's just so much lacking in terms of who are getting infected. Like, for example, you know, in my country, there are like, a thousand cases. But really, like, if people can know, we don't need the personal information, but if people can kind of know, you know, in, uh, you know, is, is it in nursing homes, is it in restaurants, then that can help ordinary people, you know, um, avoid the risk better, but right now it just seems to get hard to get this kind of data. Yeah, I think the data on where a particular person got infected is going to be inherently very hard to derive. I mean, so picture somebody, so let's let's imagine trying to reopen the economy and somebody travels to work. Uh, if they travel in their own car and don't have any contact with people, that takes that off the table. But let's imagine I use public transportation, then I walk through a crowded uh, subway station, I walk down a crowded street, I get to the office, and then you know, a lot depends on what sort of contact I have with people there and how that's set up. But you can see how it becomes very difficult 
for anybody to have any idea how they might have gotten infected if they have contact with people in many settings, many of whom they don't know. So if a, a public health authority were to call you if, you if you developed symptoms and became a known case, and they say, who have you had contact with in the past seven days, you could see how it would be impossible for anybody to be able to accurately recount everyone they've had contact with. So given that contacting may not be feasible, what what is your – do you have a recommendation for how states should proceed at uh, cautious reopening? What criteria uh, should they use then to um, – uh, try to deal with uh, the virus? Well, I think it's very challenging. I mean, clearly we need to see a reduction, uh, a sustained reduction in the rate of new cases. And that's, of course, assuming that there's ample availability of testing. So it's not an artifact of people not being able to get tested. But let's say we see a sustained reduction over 14 days or so in the rate of new cases then we have to have some way of being able to reliably identify who are the new cases and isolating them. And this is where you know, I think the one of the big challenges for us is that as many as half or more of people are asymptomatic. So in other epidemics, if you think about SARS or something like Ebola, you have people who are highly symptomatic, very sick, and not moving around a lot. Here, the vast majority of people, fortunately, are not that sick and are going to be moving around, and many of them are actually asymptomatic but infectious. So it becomes much harder to use symptomatic surveillance to identify people. You have to imagine a world in which we have some ability to test for antibodies. Uh, hopefully, by that time, we also understand what does it mean to have antibodies and what sort of immunity does that confer and for how long. Uh, then we have some people who uh, we, we have to have some way of testing on a regular basis, see whether people are actively infected, uh, and then sorting people who are positive or negative. Um, but it's it's very com complicated to think through because you can imagine, let's say we, we tested everybody in our office tomorrow, uh, and then everyone, of course, goes home that day and they interact with lots of other people before they come back. And so when a lot of people talk about the need for testing, I think what's sometimes missed is this notion that testing would actually probably need to be done fairly often unless we have some pretty clear way of, of detecting whether somebody might have been exposed in the meantime uh, since in the last interval since the last test. And I think that's where having some sort of electronic surveillance system, even though it might be unpalatable to some people, might be the only way for us to actually be able to monitor that in some systematic way. Isn't that what they're doing in China now? I mean, electronic surveillance, Li Qian? I mean, I was reading about what they're even doing in the reopening of, of Wuhan. Everyone has either a green, yellow, or red symbol on their phone. Do, doing it. China's one is very strict. Um, it's, you know, the data of uh, cell phone uh, location tracing 
uh, is directly shared uh, with the health, uh, I believe, you know, with health, you got a, a color code. Um, the South Korean, actually, people here talk about South Korea testing is, you know, seem to be the, the number one emphasis on, on South Korea, but people didn't realize that South Korea has a pretty strict cell phone location tracking um, uh, thing, uh, location tracking rule on, on anybody who tested uh, positive. So that is something which uh, it's remained to be seen can be you know, can be uh, you know implemented here. Uh, Taiwan also have a very strict uh, your cell phone location data. Um, as soon as you test positive, your cell phone location data is you know is asked to is forced to to be shared. The the Singapore one is voluntary. So um, but yeah, a lot of these kind of uh, uh, electronic cell phone location. Uh, con- Tracing is used in, in many different countries. Dr. Rope, you, you had a piece that came out in the Atlantic, um, maybe it was this week or a few days ago, talking about how business and science are looking in sort of similar directions of how to open the economy. What, any sort of lessons that you think, bottom line from the from that from your what you've written about that how states should sort of compete in a way of, of finding different ways of opening the economy? Any, any thoughts there? Sure. Well, I think sometimes business and science are seen as being in opposition here. And the point of that piece was really to highlight that there's not a dichotomous choice here. Uh, Really, what we have to recognize is this is, for better or worse, in essence, a giant social policy experiment. And nobody really knows the optimal path forward. We have both the need and the opportunity to learn from what other countries have done and what what happens in different states as a result of different policies that are enacted in different states. And we have to think about this as not a path where political leaders will decide, here's what we're going to do and we're going to stick to it no matter what, but rather a process which is akin to an innovation process that a tech company would do where, in essence, we're testing alternative A versus alternative B. We're learning. We're figuring out what are the key assumptions that need to be resolved. And as we figure that out, we're going to pivot and go with the best evidence-based approach as we can, and we're going to keep doing that. And that's, in essence, what we highlight. We have to think about this as an innovation process using the kind of processes that an innovative company would use or that scientists would use. We can't just come up with a policy prescription and assume that we can roll that out and it's going to work. And um, so any, when you think about wh- wh- when you think our area in Pennsylvania, any, any thoughts of where, how you see the, the current data situation, where you think we're going to be opening up here in the Northeast in, in Pennsylvania in particular? It's a challenging question. Um, we at Penn Medicine have been starting to work with the city and trying to think about um, how to best help their efforts. And I think the city is trying valiantly to think through how to do containment uh, once we have a smaller number of cases. And again, it comes down to this question of how are you going to track who's infected and who they might have contact with. We need some sort of technology solution uh, that I, I think needs to be part of the backbone of this. And you know, I think, as was said, in, in places like South Korea and Taiwan, where use of that has not been optional, they've been very successful at controlling the outbreak. Uh, the discussions to date that have been public with companies like Google, Apple, have all stipulated 
uh, again, due to concerns about privacy, that participation will be voluntary on an opt-in basis. And I, I worry that when you look at the rates of enrollment in various opt-in programs, you know, typically it's less than 10%. And if we have a technology-based tracking system, which has 5% of the population enroll, it won't be all that useful. So we have to figure out how are we going to set this up in such a way that we're going to have a high proportion of people participating. And that's something that I think both the city will have to think about, the state will have to think about, and maybe individual employers and other organizations will have to think about, you know, are there, are there things that they could do uh, where if there is consensus about what that technology platform might be uh, to strongly encourage, incent, compel people to participate. And I feel like that this, those discussions haven't quite uh, happened yet, but, but I think that's a very important consideration as we think about trying to reopen the economy, both in this region and elsewhere in the country. Well, Doctor, we're running out of time on our, our segment here. Thank you so much for joining us to share your insights with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.